From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. During today's podcast, we're joined by two authors of a recent McKinsey Global Institute report that looks at how companies bring value to economies, societies, and households. Our guests today are Michael Bershon, a senior partner based in London and the global co-leader of our strategy and corporate finance practice, and Clarisse Mignon Mallet, a senior partner in Paris and leader of McKinsey in France. They are also both members of the McKinsey Global Institute Council. The report they co-authored is the first in a series McKinsey is publishing on companies in the 21st century. Clarisse, let's start with you. What spurred the team to embark on this research? Thanks, happy to be here. We see quite a lot of societal expectations of business shifting, and we have evidence in multiple surveys and around us with multiple stakeholders being investors, workers, consumers. We have a few facts which I found quite striking. The first one around the fact that 87% of the people being asked about the role of a company declare that they should exist to create value for multiple interests, not just profits. And we have a ton of surveys around the millennials. I would uh, rather emphasize the Generation Z, who are our future and who are, I would say, even more polarized on on these questions, both as consumers and and, and employees. So moving on, we launched this uh, research trying to address key questions. What is the value that large corporations are creating on the economy and for households? You know, what is it? What's the nature of it? And we try to measure this impact to see how it has evolved over time uh, and whether it was changing by archetype of company. Okay, thanks. And what did you base all this research on? We focused on 5,000 companies of sales or revenues above 1 billion. Uh, We looked at a 25 years uh, period. We've computed more than 30 indicators ranging from taxes to compensation and so on and so forth. And we essentially developed two models, one which was really focused on understanding what we call the pathways, meaning $1 created by a corporation, where does it go? Where does it it go to? What are the different pathways to the households. And the second model was a clustering exercise of the companies by archetypes. And we've clustered the companies based on the nature of the value that they were creating and how this pathway was playing out for them. So it's by combining, I would say, both the pathways and the archetypes that we tried through this research to answer the questions I just outlined about what is the value that is being created How does it cascade to households? And what are the implications uh, for the decision makers? So how are corporations doing at delivering this value to citizens and households? Michael? The research firstly validates the enduring role of business in society. And in the 37 countries, now 38, but 37 at the time the research was done, uh, of the OECD, there is 61 trillion of gross value added every year. 44 trillion of that, 72%, is generated by uh, the business sector. The value that business adds to the economy, that's essentially the revenue minus the intermediate costs, essentially the external spend on goods and services to produce 
what you all produce. So 72% of value added in the OECD comes from business. It varies between 70 and 75% among the different countries, but essentially the picture is the same. It's remarkably uh, stable over time. There are higher numbers than 72% for some of the other uh, economic benefits. So business contributing 85% of labor productivity growth, 85% of technology investment. So first, as we look at the role of business in society, business leaders have a lot uh, to be proud of. But to sort of quote either, depending on where you go for your quotes, some French revolutionaries in the 18th century or Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And so this is particularly true for those who lead and steward large corporations. If you look at large corporations, which in this we defined as businesses that generate revenue above a billion dollars a year, the percentage that large corporations contribute to GDP in their home countries over the last 20 plus years, from 1995 to 2018, that has significantly increased. It's gone up 10 percentage points in terms of the share of GDP contributed by large corporations. And then even within the overall picture of large corporations, firstly, those corporations are becoming more asset and labor light, less physical capital uh, per unit of revenue, uh, fewer employees per unit of revenue. But the broader picture, uh, of course, of share of revenue going to a number of larger and larger corporations, and those being the ones that are most asset and labor light, raises a wider set of questions uh, that we'll start to explore. Wonderful. Thank you, Michael. And so how have these changing patterns of how corporations create value affected what and how much flows to households? Perhaps you could start by describing some of the pathways that you looked at. We looked, as Clarice was saying, at how value flows from corporations to households. And it flows through eight different pathways. If you take a dollar of revenue, 25 cents of that for the average corporation on a revenue-weighted basis flows through labor income. That's wages, salaries, but also benefits to employees of that corporation. 7%, 7 cents in the dollar flow as capital income, dividends, share buybacks, equally interest payments to debt holders. Six cents in the dollar is investment, earnings that are retained to then be invested in new productive assets in the future. And four cents go to production and corporate taxes. So that's 42 cents in the dollar contributing to gross value added. In addition, then you've got 58 cents, the remainder of the dollar that goes in supplier payments. And of course, that ultimately then results in labor income, capital income, investment and tax pathways for those supplier companies. But 58 cents goes there. So that's the dollar of revenue flowing to households. Got it. So it seems like labor income is one of the main ways in which corporations benefit individuals. How else do companies positively impact households? There are three other pathways. Firstly, there's consumer surplus, which is the readiness of consumers to pay above and beyond the price that they're charged, uh, as, as, as you know, right, for the goods and services. That's additional value being created. That's about 40 cents in addition per 
dollar of revenue. So a very substantial contribution that corporations make to households is in goods and services that are priced below uh, what folks are willing to pay. And then you've got two sets of spillovers beyond the purely economic. Negative spillovers, those might be, for example, the most obvious is emissions, right? Carbon emissions. But of course, there are other impacts, whether that's on land use, biodiversity, uh, you know, beyond, beyond environmental. And of course, there are positive spillovers, productivity gains, best practices that are shared in the wider economy, right? So those are eight flows by which corporations flow their value to households. And did you see any significant shifts over time in how corporate gains flow along these different paths? Yeah, so I think the the most striking one is uh, the evolution of the share of labor income versus capital. So in a way, it's not new. It's a trend that we've observed for quite some time. But it's interesting to see that it is actually amplified by the fact that large corporations are you know, making this shift happen. So if the share of capital versus labor had remained constant, the value that would have flown to household would be around $1.2 trillion. So that's very, very significant. But I think that in addition to that, and that's where I think the complication comes in, is the fact that we have a capital income that is usually very concentrated in top income households. If you take the example of the US, you know, the top 10 increased its capital share by seven percentage points over the period. So it's a bit less less polarized in other countries, but nevertheless, this concentration uh, is obviously a triggering question on, on how the value is created and how the value is being shared. Let me highlight another pathway that Michael uh, just described, which is the supplier payments. So what we see is they are going a little bit more overseas is less domestic, and it is also less SMEs. And we know that the SMEs account for a lot of the employment in local communities. So that's also uh, when you think about the inclusive value creation of a corporation, something that just as a a consequence uh, may trigger some, some questions. So it sounds like small and medium businesses are now playing a diminishing role in supplying large corporations. Both that and the other shift in capital that you just highlighted, Clarice, would seem to be negative in terms of societal impact. What are some of the positive changes, or are there any positive changes that uh, that sort of make up for this? So overall, we do have a, an increase of the consumer surplus that we that almost everybody has benefited from. And by everybody, I mean all the income uh, brackets. But on the other hand, we also have price increases as much as, uh, you know, 50% in some area, which are putting some of the services out of reach of lower income households. We see specifically education, but it can also also be healthcare. So this is also, again, in terms of um, inclusive uh, models, something that can create challenges given this diverging trends. So did you find that these value pathways that we've discussed varied at all by country and, for example, between developing markets and industrial economies? It depends on the dimension. I would say most of the trends we see across countries, but we we see a little bit more concentration, for instance, in the U.S. Um, I think what is driving the differences by country is mainly the mix of archetypes of archetypes of companies that are part of their economy. 
So if you have a, a country that has more makers as opposed to more technologists, etc., it has an impact on, on these pathways. It could be a little bit easier to illustrate that point once we've introduced the notion of, uh, of, of, of archetypes. Sean, just a few other nuances in, in some of the country mix. So as Clarice was saying, obviously the, the, the capital income uh, the biggest surges for U.S. headquartered uh, corporations, right? The smallest, for example, is in Japan. If you were to take the, the largest economies in the in the OECD, on uh, supplier payments, the general trend we talked about just now that pretty much cuts across all countries. Although in Germany, it's been a, a an increase in the supplier payments pathway for German headquartered corporations. For most others, it's been a decrease. So there are some nuances and, and, and subtleties within the pathways. But as Clarice was saying, the, the, the bigger thing is the archetypes divergence. Thank you, Michael. I, I want to return to the spillovers that you mentioned earlier. You said that they were both positive and negative. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I will. And if we, if we take the, you know, the, the last thought on the pathways, there are, of course, the, the, both the positive and, uh, and negative spillovers. One, of course, is climate change and emissions, which is now, certainly in my conversations, a, a, a major priority, right? We're at 40 gigatons a year and rising, and, and any pathway to stabilizing the climate is going to require pretty unprecedented levels of capital reallocation, portfolio shifts, creating new opportunities for green business building, for example. That's one spillover. You've got another spillover, right, which is total factor productivity. So total factor productivity is essentially how the economy combines capital and labor to create value, right? It's essentially the grease in the machine of economic progress. Things like how we harness technology to make more out of capital and labor inputs, right? how we uh, share best practices and manage well to do that. And the picture is essentially that that has slowed down materially from 1.1% increase a year in total factor productivity for the decade 1995 to 2005 to a more, the more recent decade, 0.2%, uh, right? The, the world has become less good at continuing to innovate further in combining capital and labor together to create uh, economic outcomes. Now, there are big debates among economists, CFOs, others, we could, we could have them, right? I mean, you know, the famous quote during the dot-com boom about, I see the IT investment everywhere except in the productivity statistics. Actually, the answer, of course, was that that came a little later than that quote was offered, right? So it took a while for everybody to internalize how to use the new technologies in ways that actually created productivity gains rather than just expenditure. Maybe, you know, some of that is true for all the investments we're making in digital analytics, AI uh, now, but certainly the question of how we drive total factor productivity up and therefore essentially how CFOs, other business leaders combine the various inputs in a company to create superior outcomes. That remains a global challenge. Indeed. Um, so let's maybe shift to the archetypes that Clarice alluded to earlier. I believe there are eight of them. Can you just share with us how you arrived at these eight? As Clarice was saying, what we did, and there's more detail for those of you who love methodology um, in the in the report, right? But essentially what we did was we took the 5,000 or so companies in the data set 
And then we looked at a combination of which sectors have similar factor inputs, right? So similar use of labor, um, physical capital, intangible capital. Similarities in how they create uh, economic value. So for example, similar cost structures, similar levels of R&D spending. Um, and then similar impacts on society as measured through the pathways that we previously talked about. So we set a clustering algorithm on this, right? and it worked through from 5,000 companies to 150 sectors to piecing those sectors together into eight archetypes, which are essentially companies that do similar things and have similar impact on the world, but it cuts across traditional sector boundaries. Got it. Thanks. So could you take us through the eight different archetypes? Um, so you've got, you've got the discoverers. These are companies that essentially push the scientific frontier, high R&D expenditure, a lot of intangible capital, by the way, high capital income pathways, for example. Think pharmaceutical firms, of course, but also think household products companies with differentiated products and specialist products and, and, and valuable brands, right? innovation-driven discoverers. You've got then the technologists, right? The, this is internet, media, and uh, retail, but hardware, technology, hardware, and software companies. You can conceive of some of the, the natural names in that. Experts uh, are businesses that fundamentally harness human capital more than anything uh, else to deliver services. On average, higher wages, for example, than the average corporation, right? In here would be business services, companies, uh, private hospitals, uh, private educational institutions uh, as well, right? 6% of revenue in the OECD. You then got deliverers. Deliverers are their retailers, their distributors, their, by the way, uh, restaurant chains as well, right? Businesses who essentially take inputs from uh, often from elsewhere and distribute them and sell them across a wide area. And the rise of these institutions has some quite significant impact. You've then got makers. Makers, essentially capital-intensive manufacturers, think aerospace and defense, think automotive, uh, but also, let's say, construction and engineering companies as well. Builders are the, 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 the people who build the physical infrastructure that the world revolves around, right? So think uh, utilities companies, mining companies as well are in the, are in the builder segment. Fuelers is, is, is close to a sector classification, right? That's that essentially the algorithm spits out. That becomes uh, oil and gas and coal predominantly. And financiers, again, is broadly uh, spit out as a sector classification, right? That's banks, insurance companies, real estate end up getting clustered together. Thanks so much, Michael. And one would guess that there would be some major differences in how these archetypes are manifested or, or sort of show up in different countries, and, and it would depend a little bit on their economies. Is that right? So those are the eight archetypes. They have different uh, stories of pathways. There is different um, predominance of these archetypes in particular parts of the world. So it won't surprise you to, to, to know that, for example, makers are more prevalent in Germany and, for example, uh, Korea. Some of the other archetypes, like technologists, are more prevalent in the US. The UK economy includes quite a lot of financiers and fuelers uh, and discoverers relative to the average 
OECD economy. And as these archetypes do somewhat cut across uh, traditional uh, sector boundaries, because when you look at the impact that particular institutions have on the economy, you see that, for example, actually large manufacturing, capital-intensive manufacturing institutions and construction and engineering firms, actually some of their impact is relatively similar. When you think about R&D-driven firms, they don't need to be in pharmaceutical sector, for example, to have the similar pathways around high capital returns. Okay, so once a business leader has determined which archetype their company belongs to, how would they use that information? Sure. If you think about archetypes, they have broadly similar footprints in terms of their impact on society. If you like both a bunch of positive contributions and some challenges to manage. And so at least our thought is actually thinking beyond those sector boundaries. Some of this is, of course, every business needs to think about itself. Some of it is the economy as a whole. But actually, when you look at the archetypes, they do they are kindred spirits across sector boundaries. So one thought is collaborating with members of your archetype, we think is a real opportunity for people rather than just the traditional sector boundaries. And sometimes uh, we've talked about it as sort of purpose peers, right? When you think about what's my purpose in society, some of the other members of the archetype that are, are slightly surprising, strange bedfellows, right, might provide inspiration for that. Thanks, Michael. Um, Clarice, have you seen any significant shifts in the composition of these archetypes over time, perhaps across economies? Yes. So I think um, what we see as the most striking elements from our analysis is the relative decline of makers. And, you know, the makers represent 30% of the total labor income and and, and 26% of the total R&D. So I think this has also been the predominant archetype in OECD. And it is, by definition, also quite central to employment. So I think behind the decline of uh, makers, we also have the rationale for why we also have a a rise of capital income over labor income. I think it also explains the corporation contribution to a country uh, economy. And, And typically, if you take the makers, you know, in Germany, the share of makers have actually remained quite constant. And the investment in R&D has been also among the highest in this, in this archetype compared to other countries. So what does it mean is that the makers are really representing the biggest employment archetype. Their decline will create some consequences on labor uh, versus, uh, versus income. We also believe that Again, this analysis is focused on OECD, so it's, a, it's an overall uh, decline in this uh, region. But we see a global shift of makers from OECD to non-OECD economies. So I think that's the biggest shift. Understood. And are there any other archetypes where you saw significant shifts? What we see is the growth of the fa- financier, experts, deliverers, and technologists. And, and for me, this is basically explaining uh, a bit of the message that we try to to convey until now: more capital income, which comes from financiers and technologists, polarization of wages because deliverers actually have the lowest wages, experts tend to have the highest uh, wages again on average, and also we see 
that this is also what is guiding the differences between countries because this mix is actually quite different from one country to another, even though overall we see the growth of those four, uh, I would say, archetypes. So you've shared that the global corporate landscape in terms of how companies create value in different economies is shifting. But what does this all mean for how public and business leaders should think about their company's performance and their broader responsibility to society? So then if one steps back for a second, I mean, we know we live in an era of ESG and we often talk a lot about the E and it's hugely important. I think for the next few years, the S is also going to be absolutely crucial in ESG as well, right? And a bunch of what hopefully this research begins to to shine a spotlight on is some of the quite fundamental underlying forces that are driving some of the phenomena we're seeing today. And so four thoughts from us. One is literally, you know, uh, know your numbers, right? What, What does it look like for your company by pathway? What does it look like relative to peers? relative to companies headquartered in your country and actually within your archetype, because those ultimately are bedfellows with similar impact on the economy. Secondly, then, as as you look at those numbers, are there pathways that you feel you could broaden right, or should broaden? And if so, that then has various implications for the fundamentals of business operations. It's, look, what do we think about our labor pathway? That's everything from where are we locating colleagues? Are we able to to, to recruit more? What is the balance of income going as we think about diversity and equity and inclusion and the imperative there? By the way, how do we think about reskilling at scale? There are a lot of jobs that exist now that may be less relevant in the coming years. How as companies do we make the investment and what's the ROI both financial and purposeful in reskilling at scale. Supplier payments, is our procurement as well as driving value for the company? How inclusive is it? Are we developing new suppliers, for example, SME suppliers, such that they can compete with others? Uh, Consumer surplus, to Clarice's point, if we want to increase consumer surplus, it's a bunch of digital business building because technologists, businesses create huge consumer surplus and actually disrupting some of the higher priced areas or new innovation uh, in areas like healthcare and education that can support households with lower incomes would be hugely positive. Of course, by the way, capital income pathway is enormously important, right? Enormously important. And many companies are not where they would want to be on that. So yes, that may mean things like employees and shareholders, dividend policy, but it may also mean fundamental business transformation and performance improvement to improve that pathway. There is, of course, the, the, the fundamental climate challenge Uh, and then how we think about positive spillovers. A bunch of this has implications for organizational processes. Capital allocation in a world where are we beginning at least to measure some of these things so that we're able to make trade-offs as appropriate versus they're just simply not measured, whether that is how we think about carbon emissions and capital allocation, um, but equally how we think about some of the other archetypes, strategy and investor communications. And then there is something about archetypes, members of archetypes coming together, as well as engaging with governments, for example, on the basis of this is this is the sort of footprint we have uh, in the economy and what we're contributing to the country. Yeah, given the concentration of value creation among uh, the large corporation, we also have a concentration of the scrutiny. I think that that is also what is going to happen, right? So the scrutiny with the associated 
risks, uh, but also the opportunities to have impact on some of those dimensions, right? So I think what is changing is, is this concentration, both of the large, large corporation, concentration of capital and so on, which are, I think, linked to this trend of stakeholders being much more uh, aware, educated, and, and, and looking at these different elements of economic and societal contribution of, of the corporations. That, that's why we think it's a topic to engage upon. Thank you. Um, earlier, we talked about the opportunities that companies can identify as they think about archetypes and what archetype they're in. Are there any specific risks or red flags that executives should be on the lookout uh, for as they connect with others in their archetype, building on the point that you'd made earlier? So I think that uh, we would urge, uh, obviously, any, any company to do the materiality assessment of all those uh, both economic and societal implications uh, with opportunities to differentiate and, and show a positive contribution, in particular from a job creation, if you're using domestic suppliers, which we know are important for employment and communities and so on. So, so it's not only looking at the negative externalities, which are usually, at least from a carbon standpoint, identified, right? But it's also the, the positive contribution. So I think the first message is really to make this materiality assessment of what are the externalities that the company is creating, what are also the areas of strength, um, because it is contributing back to the pathways to uh, value creation for the households through giving consumer surplus um, uh, and accessibility to goods and services, as well as employment. Uh, and obviously, the, the, the spillovers are not completely quantified today. We tend to only look at the carbon elements. We're not looking at many other dimensions, water, other types of uh, resourcing, resources, biodiversity, etc. So I would say baselining very objectively uh, the contribution, the externalities that a company is, is, is generating and then trying to have some focus areas. Because what we also know and we observed is that companies tend to have a laundry list of initiatives tackling dozens of topics. And in order to make a difference, we see that the companies which are extracting most value out of you know, ESG um, um, strategies and so on are the, the companies who are really fo focusing on two or three areas where they really double down to make a difference, which doesn't mean they're not tackling the other topics, but they're really trying to focus on a few areas. Thank you. This is our last question. Your research looks at data from past decades. What are your predictions for how these pathways might evolve in the future, especially in light of widespread digital transformations that were further accelerated by the pandemic? I think we can we can uh, assume that the makers indeed are going to go uh, are going to keep growing outside the OECD um, zone. I would say I think uh, you know the technologists uh, definitely and the financier financiers are, are also rising decline in makers in OECD and rise of uh, deliverers, technologists, uh, and financiers, I think, should amplify in, in, in the years to come. And we don't really see neither a trend saying that the concentration of the large corporation will, will go down because it keeps actually accelerating. For me, the one thing I, I, I would say is I think the focus on the S of ESG is for me one of the big 
one of the forecasts I would have for the for the, for the next few years, right? I don't think that means the focus on the E is going to go down, but I actually think if one wants to be ahead of where the trends are, it's actually deep thinking about the S is, I think, the thing that's going to position companies to be more thoughtful about their role in society as well. Thank you so much, Clarice and Michael. We really appreciate the time you took with us today. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. We hope you all enjoyed the discussion. And as we conclude this, our 100th episode, we'd also like to thank those of you who've been with us since our very first, those of you who've joined us along the way, and also those who are listening today for the very first time. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. And thank you to all the guests who've joined us to discuss these important topics. And finally, many thanks to the team behind the scenes who make this all possible. I know they join me in looking forward to when we can celebrate our 200th episode with you soon. You can find Michael and Clarice's report, A New Look at How Corporations Impact the Economy and Households, on McKinsey.com. And we've also included a link to the report in the show notes for this episode. We'll share a transcript of this discussion on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we encourage you to email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, or you can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.